Hello, everybody. Hi, happy Tuesday. Good to see you. First Tuesday of 2022. 2022. It's hard, hard to believe. 2022 looks very weird to me when I see it on the page. More than 2021 really? did or 20. Yeah, I don't know why. why? Maybe it's because three. Can you imagine what it'll be like when it's 2222? 2222. A couple oh, hundred years wow. from now. I mean, I, I won't be around for it. But, well, in February, but, it'll be. Two, 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 two. Two, yeah. Two, and one more two. Yeah. yeah. Wow. wow. That'll look weird, too. Okay, so <laughs> I'm weird. So we've established that long before, and well, we're glad y'all are here with us today. We're going to pick yes, up our are. study of John, where we left it two weeks ago a week. Today we come to John 10, which is all about shepherds. Shepherds. Shepherds, okay. yeah. So we're going to be here a while, because I'm going to talk, I've got some stuff on shepherds and Everything else. And you know who won't... else loves what? shepherds? Who else? Who do we know? Robert Hesley. He does. Psalm 23 Psalm is his 23 favorite. Psalm 23. What he wanted to name the church all 35 years ago. What the chapel is named. The, the Good Shepherd. He wanted to name it the Good Shepherd. And, and it is yes. a church. So, um, yeah. 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 Kind so, of a cool okay. thing. It is a cool thing. So, all right. We well. hope everybody's doing well. We hope you all had a wonderful holiday. Christmas and New Year's. We hope your family is healthy and well. Um, our family, thank goodness, Savannah's better now from COVID. Our grandson's better from COVID. Um, we haven't been around anybody. Yeah, we're, we went, <laughs> but we've returned to hiding out for just a we bit. We really just a, have. Just a couple of weeks, probably, yes. just to let the worst of the surge flow past us. True, true. So we break the back tree into is the world still again. up. Robbie and Savannah's <laughs> presents are sitting on the couch and I'm not taking any of it down till they feel comfortable enough to. We're just going to have Christmas in January. We are. Yeah, it could why be not? February. <laughs> could be. <laughs> no. Anyway. Man. <laughs> anyway, I guess it's time for you to get us started. Okay. Honey. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are so grateful to be gathered today. It is the first Tuesday of this new year. We are back. Resuming our journey through John's gospel, and we pray that you will help us to hear John well, to to take some of these passages from John that are very familiar, and to hear them with new ears, and a fresh heart, and an open mind. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alrighty. Okay, Patty. I don't think I heard that one before. I... I... I hear you often saying that we would see things with fresh eyes, but I, I haven't been hearing you say that we're going to see things with fresh ears or whatever I said. New, new ears. New yeah. ears. Sounds good. Open ears. Sounds maybe it's good. maybe it's because yesterday in T Timothy we were talking about people who were hearing with itching ears because they wanted to hear what they yes. wanted to hear, yes. right? Yes. So yeah, so it could have been that. Well, so we all want to do that. <laughs> we all, but we have to be, especially as Christians, wise enough to know that, right? Exactly. It's not all about us. Exactly. Okay, so let's see. We are in John chapter ten, and um, this is a really well-known chapter of the seven I am statements. In John's Gospel, two of them come from chapter 10, and they all revolve around sheep and shepherds. So I thought that we ought to spend a little bit of time talking about sheep and shepherds, and then we're going to look at a few other passages in Scripture besides John 10 about sheep and shepherds, because all of that context is really important to hearing Jesus well. 
So, so let's just talk about sheep a little bit. Um, sheep are the most domesticated animal on the planet, really. And they are so domesticated that they're not really equipped to take care of themselves. If you've ever seen the movie Babe, you know this. They are sitting ducks for, for predators and need to be protected. And so as far back in history as we can see practically, there were shepherds who cared for flocks, some sheep, some goats, sometimes mixed together. And the, the, the shepherds were responsible for their sheep and they were responsible for their care. They would take them to pastures to feed. They would take them to places where the sheep could get water. They would protect them from predators. Um, and we know that that practice of being, of caring for the sheep sort of, I think naturally, was transferred over to a king and his people because the king's job was to take care of his people and provide protection for his people. So the image of a king as the shepherd of his people is really pretty common in the ancient Near East. There's, it's not just a Jewish thing or, or a Jesus thing or anything. No, it's, it's really fairly common. And in fact, going back about 5,000 years in the Sumerian civilization in the Tigris-Euphrates River Basin, um, we have images of their kings wearing shepherd's caps, simple little shepherd's caps, as a, as a symbol that the king was to be a good shepherd for his people. And, of course, the great king of Israel, the idealized king of Israel, um, was King David. And when Samuel goes to meet David, what is David doing? David is caring for the sheep. David is the shepherd. Now, the most famous passage in the new uh, in the Bible about shepherds is is certainly Psalm 23. It's all it all revolves really around sort of a typical day for shepherds. And when David writes it, um, God God is of course the shepherd and his people are the sheep. So I brought just a few slides to help illustrate a little bit of this because um, backgrounds, I think, is always helpful. So let me go to, first of all, um, when Jesus is going to talk about the shepherds and sheep today, he is still going to be in Jerusalem. Okay, it's, it's just an immediate run on from chapter 9. Still up there, probably working and talking in the temple courtyard somewhere, in the shade somewhere, more than likely, talking to, to the Pharisees. But here is a rod and staff, which you encounter in Psalm 23. The rod was a shorter, heavy, club-like device used for what? Used to help protect the sheep. Warding off predators. Sheep herding was actually a fairly dangerous thing to do. And it was done by men and by some women as well. Um, uh, Rebecca is, it looks after sheep. So it wasn't, uh, most of the shepherds were men, but, but there, were, there were many really that, that, that were women. And they would typically work with two instruments, the rod, this shorter club-like device, and then the staff, this long pole that had the hook on the end, the crook on the end. 
and they would use that for trying to maneuver and manage the sheep and counting them when they were coming into the sheepfold. Because what the shepherd would do is, um, unless he really felt secure, he would bring the sheep um, and lead them back to their sheep pen, their sheepfold for the night. Now, one thing about Middle Eastern sheep shepherds, which is true today as it was then, is that the shepherds lead their sheep. They don't, um, they're not like, if you've seen sheepdogs work, you know that the sheepdogs maneuver the sheep by sort of pushing them around, pushing them forward into the places the sheepdog or the shepherd might want them to go. That is not the case with these Middle Eastern sheepherders. They lead the sheep. They walk in front of the sheep. They call the sheep to them. In fact, um, uh, if herds, if let's say there's two small herds and they get mixed up, the two shepherds can separate them by each of them calling their own sheep by um, using the shepherd's own voice. So they're like, I guess, like dogs that way. Not cats, <laughs> but dogs who will actually respond to their master's voice and the, the, the sheep will follow the shepherd. So the shepherd who has been guarding them and leading them to pasture to feed and getting them water and trying to make sure that they don't overeat the pasture that they're using and stuff will lead them to a sheep fold, a sheep pen that... Um, is pretty much what you think. It would often be made out of stone and used by many different shepherds and sheep over time. This is the remains of an of a Middle Eastern sheep fold and sheep pen from the past. You can see the big one. You can see a smaller one to the side. There would be a gate there and the shepherd would lead them there so that the sheep would be protected at night from predators and so that the shepherd could get some sleep because um, otherwise the shepherd would have to stay up, you know, all night. Um, or at least one of the shepherds would have to stay up all night to ward off predators who might come in the night looking for easy prey. So um, this is a photograph of a modern-day, well, maybe still used, this is a sheep fold, a sheep pen with a gate in it. I don't know where this photo was taken. It might have been taken in Ireland for all I know. But it's the same idea. A structure made with stone in places where stone, stone is common. And that's certainly the Mideast. Certainly the Mideast. Certainly Israel. The kind of shepherds we're talking about. But they wouldn't always have access to this kind of thing. And sometimes they would work out more temporary structures. So I found this photo of a shepherd and his sheep pen. Doesn't look like much. I don't know how much sleep he could actually get if the sheep were inside this this particular this particular sheep pen. That um, looks so much like the space the spot that we went to, I believe back in 2011 when we went to that um, town that was recreated to yes. look like it did in ancient days. Yes, and they had a small sheep pen or yes. sheep fold there. And um, was enough, I think, to keep the sheep corralled and maybe enough to, to keep predators away. But in any event, that's the thing. Now, all of this factors in 
to Psalm 23, Ezekiel 34, John 10. It all provides the necessary context, which we have to learn, but the people back in those days, well, they just grew up, they just grew up knowing it, right? So I'm going to go back to me. So turn to Psalm 23, and let's just enjoy Psalm 23. That's where we're going to start today. Then we're going to go to Ezekiel 34, and then we're finally going to go to John 10. Okay? So here's the Psalm 23, not the King James Version, um, but the NIV translation of the Hebrew. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Right? Because the shepherd's job was to take care of the sheep. So as long as the sheep had a worthy and good shepherd, they, did, they didn't lack anything. They, the shepherd would make sure that they got what they needed. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? David, David is grateful for God's protection. Um, which for David was very real because there were many times in his life that David was being hunted and chased and, and, and feared for his life. Verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now this anointing with oil, it is... Um, it, it, is, it does get to the issue of, of healing in the ancient world because it was one of the very few things that they would do. I mean, what could they really do? They had herbs and other things like that. But they, they would anoint with oil. But kings were anointed with oil. Um, and, and, and David, as king, was anointed by Samuel to be the second king of the United Tribes. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord and dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. This enormous promise, this, this is the promise that we all cling to, that we all affirm, that we all proclaim, that regardless of the particular circumstances of our lives, in the moment, regardless of what has happened to us with jobs, illnesses, whatever it might be, we know that God's goodness and love will be with us all the days of our life, and that is not the end of us, for we will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. It's just beautiful, and it's it's no wonder that Psalm 23 is... Um, read so often it is no wonder that it's used in in so many uh, memorial services because of the promise at the end the reminder at the end of, of 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 what god has prepared for us but it's built around the shepherd idea the shepherd idea is really rather straightforward that the shepherd 
will be a good shepherd in that the shepherd will be will do what a shepherd should do care protect serve look out for the interests of the sheep um and in the history of Israel that's what the kings were supposed to do but the sad story of the of is of Israel's kingdoms is that most of the kings did a terrible job a terrible job at this they were not good kings so turn to Ezekiel chapter 34 this is the most famous passage about um the bad kings of Israel I gotta find this Scott, on my can, can yes. we just go over two things where you just were for just a very quick second sure um, Kathy just posted that she remembers back when Catherine Self was at our church and got married, that she had this passage read at her wedding. And she, of course, Catherine's not here to answer that, but she was wondering why it's not a typical marriage passage. Why maybe do you think somebody really picked this? I think it's because the psalm really speaks to our whole life ahead, right? Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So when you take the psalm and you extend it to our entire life on earth and our life after death and our life after life after death, you can see that, I sure, I think that marriage marks a beginning. Um... And that beginning is should be walked with God, and that's what Psalm 23 is about. So I sort of get that, even though Kathy is certainly right. It is not typically read at weddings. It might be, maybe it would be good if it was, because 1 Corinthians 13 is a bit overused at weddings. Now, I, I have a quick question for you. Yeah. Back in verse 3, the second part of verse 3 is he guides me along the right paths. I totally get that. But for his name's sake, what does that exactly ah, mean? For his name's sake. Because we are in our lives to glorify God. In other words, remember, glory is this social word um, that when others see in us being God's hands and feet, hands and feet, um, uh, caring for others, being kind and compassionate, and they know that we are among God's people, then that glorifies God. So, so um, uh, I think that's what that is about, that he guides us along. That's, we talked about this in Timothy yesterday. That's, it's part of what scripture does. It, it helps us to stay on the path that is God's way. And and when we stay on that path and we are living out the fruit of the Spirit and the other things Paul will talk about in his letters, all of that glorifies God. All of that is for God's name's sake. Okay, because remember name is a very powerful idea. It really, it's not just a, it's not just a label. It speaks to the person. Um, and so... Um, it reminds me that we are not, Jesus hasn't saved us for our sake alone. 
Jesus has saved us for God's sake, for God's purposes, right? Because we're to be the ones who are the shining city on the hill. We are the ones who are to be the light of the world. We are the ones who are to be God's witnesses. We are the ones who are supposed to go out and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach and all the rest of it. Well, that's how God has done this. And so all of that is for God's sake because God wants to reconcile humanity to God. So I kind of think that's how it all fits together. I like that. I'm so glad. It is. You know, it's... I think a lot of times we Christians would be helped if we understood God's larger purposes and understood that we all have a part to play in God's larger purposes and, and read more of the Bible as helping us understand those larger purposes and our place in that and our work in that um, as opposed to over what over individualizing it and and thinking that's all just about me me getting you know me getting saved or wherever you want to put it there's there's more there's a lot more so okay anything else over there patty no that was it and i'm so sorry i know you were in ezekiel but. That's okay. We're going to go now. We're going to go to Ezekiel, 30, Ezekiel 34 because there are a number of Old Testament passages which take this shepherd image and use it to talk about the bad shepherds, the bad shepherds of Israel. And it's a necessary contrast to what we're going to encounter in chapter 10. So we could, there's a shorter passage in Jeremiah. There's some in Micah. But really, the famous one, the big one, is in Ezekiel chapter 34. And just go to the first verse. That's what I'm doing here. I'm punching my iPad furiously. <laughs> so just go to the second verse. So, so... About midway through the second verse, where God's word begins. This is what the sovereign Lord, this is what the sovereign, this is what King Yahweh says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. Those are the kings. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the choice animals, and you do not take care of the flock. You haven't strengthened the weak, you haven't healed the sick, you haven't bound up the injured, you haven't brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly, brutally, and they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep, remember, my people. That's what this is about, my people, God's people. Wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched to look for them. Because by the time Ezekiel brings this word from God, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone. The ten lost tribes of Israel are scattered. The southern kingdom of Judah is about to fall to the Babylonians and be marched off into exile. The world has fallen in upon them. And what have the kings done about it? Nothing. 
Then God's word goes on in verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As surely as I, as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered, and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. This is what I say. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. Wow. Look at verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after the scattered flock when he is with them, so will I, God, the Lord God, Yahweh, look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will tend them, verse 14, I will tend them a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be, get, be their grazing ground. Verse 15, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Yahweh. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. The sleek and the strong being those who believe that they don't need God. Those who are the kings. And as it turns out, the chief, the priests, the chief priests and the rest. So, you've got that point. Scoot down to verse 23 for an interesting moment. Because remember, this is written, this is written, let's say, for round numbers' sake, 400 years after, after King David. 400 years. And this is what, this is the word Ezekiel brings. Verse 23. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. My servant David? And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their sheep. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I'm gonna, he's going to raise up David. And, of course, for the Jews, they knew of God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 that one from the house of David would always sit on the throne, but the kings had proved themselves Anything but idealized kings. And now Jesus has come forward. And he is a descendant of whom? Of David. Of David. Exactly. This is the kind of place where for a Christian, you can't help but think of Jesus. When you come to 23 and 24 and this promise that God is going to bring a, bring David. Right? And so in that way, Jesus as Messiah is, as the prince here, in, as I put it in the verse, is um, that that's who Jesus is. 
Jesus is the new David, the Messiah, the Prince, to whom God is going to entrust his people. All of that in Ezekiel 34 and more. And as it goes on, we're not going to read through all the rest of it, I think, but there are these great promises of blessings to come. Um, look, at, look down at verse 29. We'll, we'll pick up there. It'll be illustrative. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, Yahweh, their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Yahweh. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Yahweh. And it's in the context of that that Jesus is going to begin to talk to the Pharisees about shepherds and sheep in John 10. So, let me pause, see if there's any questions anybody's got. Anything you want to ask, Patty, anybody out there? Um, I am just wondering if this is where, I guess it's not where, Prince of Peace originally came from. No, that comes from Isaiah. Okay. Um, where it's a, um, but it is striking, is it not, that that here the word prince is used yes. to speak of this David who is going to be the shepherd for the sheep. And of course, all of that feeds into the idea of Messiah who is Messiah is simply anointed one. That's all Messiah means. Messiah is the, comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach. All it means is the anointed one. Think back to Psalm 23. Think back to the fact that the kings of Israel were anointed. They were the anointed ones. Well, Messiah means the anointed one. And thus it means prince. Or it means king. It is a royal term. Messiah is a royal term. It is a royal term. It does not describe... It is not a term to be applied that Jews would have applied to God. The Messiah was to be a human, a new David, as it were, whom God would raise up to be a prince among his people and lead his people in, um, you know, kicking out the pagans and cleansing the temple and the rest of it. But 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 not like a second god or something like that whatever they you might you might think but so messiah is a royal term but it's not a divine term of course we know that in jesus you know the divinity <laughs> he is both god and messiah but for the jews of jesus's day and for the jews of today those are two very separate ideas and should not be mixed together so, anything else before we head over to John 10? But I would imagine that Ezekiel is familiar with that um, scripture verse from Ezekiel, for unto us a child is born. And would, Ezekiel be, would Ezekiel know the scroll of Isaiah? I think he would, because okay. Ezekiel's from a couple hundred years after the first 39 chapters of Isaiah were written. 
And uh, so he would be. But I'd have to do a word study to see how much, how many times something that could be translated prince occurs in the Old Testament. Surely the little passage from Isaiah you're talking about and this one um, are not the only ones. But they get to the same idea. You see, that's the thing. It's like, it's like all over the old the Hebrew scriptures, all over the Old Testament, there are all these little signposts poking up out of the ground, pointing ahead, pointing ahead to something. They're not the thing, but they're pointing ahead to the thing. And that <laughs> the thing is, of course, Jesus. But when you begin to look at each of these signposts, you begin to understand who Jesus is. And remember, remember when we were, uh, this is, gosh, a few months ago, we were back in John 3, which might well have been a few months ago. And, and Nicodemus comes in the night and is confused and doesn't understand. And Jesus takes him to task and says, you are a teacher of Israel. You're a Pharisee. How can you not understand what I'm doing? How can you not understand who I am? Because clearly Jesus' view is that if you read the Hebrew Scriptures well, they will lead you to Jesus. It is the view of Paul. It is the view of the early Christians. It is the reason that the Christians um, never got rid of the Hebrew Bible. They, they kept all of it. The Old Testament you read is the same as the sacred scrolls that Jesus would have named as a boy. And they kept it all because they understood that all of that makes sense of who Jesus is. And without it, you would be lost in understanding truly Jesus, his mission, the gift that he is for us, um, it, it ties to an old question that I, I've gotten for 20 years at St. Andrew. You know, could Jesus have been born in London or Germany or Tokyo or somewhere? And the answer is no. His, his arrival is not a one-off thing where simply God says, well, you know, I'm going to take on human flesh and then, you know, Somebody has to die for sins. So yeah, yeah, okay, it'll be this guy and off we go. No, it's completely embedded in the Jewish story. It's completely embedded in the covenant that God makes with his people at, the, at Mount Sinai. It's embedded in all of that. All of that leads you forward, rushes you forward. And that's what Jesus is going to do in John 10. Jesus is going to take everything about the good shepherds, and the bad shepherds, and focus all that upon himself. And so, yeah, you would sort of get John 10, I guess, if you didn't have Psalm 23 or Jeremiah, whatever it is, or Ezekiel 34 or Micah, whatever it is, <laughs> that talk about the shepherds. But you wouldn't really get it. There would be no, no what, no depth to it. Right? It, it, it is the, it's, how is it like? Okay, so without the Old Testament, a lot of stuff in the New Testament you might get, but it would, might be like pouring the foundation of a house 
and only pouring it an inch thick. Where they, it's there, and you can see it, and you can sort of grasp what it's supposed to be, but it's not deep enough to really endure. It is the depth of God's entire rescue plan going back to Abraham that provides the depth for the foundation that Jesus is of the church. So, I don't know. I never used that analogy before. I don't know that I'll ever use it again, but <laughs> that's what I do. That's what teachers do, right? We use analogies and metaphors a lot. So does scripture, right? Because scripture's teaching. All scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and righteousness. So if scripture is, is useful for teaching first thing out of the gate, then you know it's going to be filled with metaphors and analogies and the rest of it because that's how we learn anything. All right, friends. Anything else over there, Patty? No, sir. Okay, so let's all go to John 10. Now, with all this prep, we are chopping at the bit to get there, aren't we? John 10, verse 1. And as I said, Jesus is still in the um, in Jerusalem. Probably in the temple courtyards. Or... Uh, somewhere up there, more than likely. Uh, it's a huge place, as I've explained. And um, talking in this case, but he's got a crowd around him, but he's, he's specifically talking to the Pharisees, who as a group are opponents of Jesus. Not all of them, really. Nicodemus is an example. But generally, yes, they are. And so look at chapter 10, right at verse 1. So he is, Jesus is going to be very intense here. And he begins with the double amen. Amen, amen, truly, truly, very truly, I tell you Pharisees. Our word amen comes from the Greek word, basically, amen, which means truly, truly, truly. Truly, truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Right? Makes all kind of sense. Why were they why are they climbing the wall of the sheep pen rather than go through the gate? Because they are sneaking in. The steel sheep. Just like in the movie, Babe. The one who enters by the gate, well, that is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. Wow, okay, yes, that is, that is how it was done. The people hearing this would go, yeah, the sheep do hear his voice. He doesn't bark at them and bleat at them, trying to push them forward. He leads them with his voice. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. So the gatekeeper, which would be a helper, right, opens the gate for the shepherd, and the sheep listen to his voice as he leads them into the pen for the night, where they will be safe and protected from the wolves. He calls his own sheep by name, 
and leads them out, presumably the next morning. Right? So as I said, you could have a couple of shepherds could keep two flocks in there at the same time, but their sheep would follow their own shepherd. And so he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now that right there speaks to the nate to the huh. <laughs> all of this is a metaphor, right? The close relationship <laughs> that the sheep have with the shepherd. They trust the shepherd. They follow the shepherd's voice. The shepherd leads them into protection, leads them out of the uh, sheep pen in the morning to lead them to where they need to go to eat, to drink, to meet their daily needs, to get their daily bread. Okay, do you switch to another metaphor? So, verse 4. When he, the shepherd, has brought out all his own, these are the sheep who belong to this shepherd. That's an important idea in this chapter. These are the sheep that belong to that shepherd. He goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Right? This, uh, we, so often we talk about coming to know Jesus. You know, coming, I, I don't typically use words like knowing his voice because I don't think we audibly hear Jesus um, outside the pages of Scripture. But we want to come to know Jesus so we can what? We can follow Jesus just as in his, here in verse 4, the sheep are following the shepherd by following his voice. They're following they're following their master. They're following their protector, their comforter. So back to verse 4, when he has brought them out, all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. True. True. True fact about sheep in the Mideast. They don't follow strangers' voices. They follow their their own shepherd's voice. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. So all of this time, you see, Jesus is building up this metaphor. In each little piece, and the crowds would be quite familiar with this because this is an agricultural economy and everybody knows about sheep and sheep herding and all the rest of it, even if they don't do it themselves. They grow up around this stuff. Even the city guys. Verse 6 Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. Now, does that mean that the, that the Pharisees don't understand about sheep? No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is he, uh, they don't understand where he's taking them. They're not putting two and two together very well. They're not putting two and two together very well. So now he's going to He's going to speak more plainly. Jesus says, Therefore, verse 7, Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, amen, amen. You see? Um, he, he's not... In their culture, you're only obligated to tell the truth to somebody who is your peer or above in their very intense social structure. Jesus is, above all, he doesn't owe anybody the truth. 
that may strike us as odd, but that's how it was. So when he says, amen, amen, truly, truly, he is saying, I'd like, it's like, I don't owe you the truth, but I'm telling you the truth. Truly, truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep haven't listened to them. I am the gate, the ego a me, another one of the great set of the seven I am statements. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And now his use of this particular metaphor, the gate, becomes clear. That those who hear Jesus' voice, who follow Jesus, use a little broader idea, those who are, those who belong to Jesus, in, in this very metaphor, those who belong to Jesus are those who will be saved. It, just as those sheep who are led into the pen by their shepherd go in through the gate, and when they, once they get through the gate, and the gate's closed, then they are protected. They are saved, as it were, from the, from the wolves from the wolves. So again, in John's Gospel, it's one of, I've never counted them, the number of places where Jesus makes it clear that the way to rescue, the way to salvation, the way out of the world of darkness is through Jesus. And everyone else is a stranger in this regard. It's only Jesus. It's Jesus. He, it's, it's, it's Jesus. He is the gate. You have to go through the gate. Label Jesus. <laughs> he is the gate. You know, it's no, nothing here about the gate being only super narrow and only a few people get through or anything like that. The point simply is that he's saying to his fellow Jews, especially the Pharisees, that he is the way to the rescue that they have all long awaited. Verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They, those who enter through Jesus in this particular verse, they will come in, they will go out, they will find pasture. They will enjoy the life afforded by Jesus. Verse 10. The thief, remember the one who climbs over the wall of the pen and the rest of it, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. That's a more traditional trans translation. Contrasting as John does throughout the gospel, the world of darkness and the world of light. The world without Jesus and the world with Jesus. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But 
in Jesus, Jesus comes offering life, not just in eternity, not just after we have passed on, as we all will, to a life after death and to a resurrected life, but in this life, an abundant life, a life of fulfillment and satisfaction and joy, joy which is a deep-seated um, understanding of who you are and that God loves you, not really to be thrown here and there by the circumstances of our life. Joy is something deeper than happiness. Happiness is kind of circumstantial, but, but joy is not to be that. To have an abundant life in this life and the next, an abundant life with God. There's so many things in the world that people say that they want and they don't know, they don't know the path to them. They just don't. And, and and it seems like so many just, just, they think they'll find them within themselves or they'll think they'll find them, you know, from the right therapist or something. But the truth is, it, it lies, it lies, the path that they're really looking for is a path that leads to God. So verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. And that word good there is a Greek word, kalos, and we could probably put, it doesn't mean he's just, it isn't, well, instrumental. It, it isn't just about the work. It is, he is a worthy shepherd. He is a noble shepherd. And what makes him a worthy shepherd? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, you know, shepherds did have shepherds did have to ward off wild animals and fight them, and it could be a dangerous um, occupation from time to time. And Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd." What makes him the noble shepherd, the worthy shepherd? Well, the second half of the verse, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And I go back to the Christmas story when Mary brings little baby Jesus to the temple and they're all going to do their necessary rituals. And, and the old man Simeon looks at Mary and says, Mary, you know, the sword will pierce your own soul. And that shadow falls across the story of Jesus. And it never leaves the story of Jesus. How many times has Jesus already said, ah, my hour has not yet come. What hour is coming? Jesus knows that the path he is on is going to put him in direct conflict with the forces of wickedness in this world. He's, it isn't that he's just willing to take on the possibility that he might die. He knows where his path will take him. And the only way to avoid that end, 
To avoid that cross is to turn away, to be less faithful to the vocation that he has been given him by God, to genuinely love God and love others every day in every way, and that path is a path that will lead him directly to Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas. And now the good shepherd, the worthy shepherd, is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. That's what makes him a worthy shepherd. A good shepherd. It's not that, you know, a lot of people will get caught up in, well, he's a good shepherd because he's a good example to us and other things of that sort. Well, he is a good example, but that's not what's happening here in verse 11. There's nothing about being an example here or showing us a better way. We know what the way is. Love God, love others. We know what the way is. The problem is we don't do it. That's the problem that we can't fix. That's the problem that God has determined to fix. So, no, it's not about being, the good shepherd is not about being a good example. It's about knowingly the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, you see, is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. That's just a hired hand. He's not going to give up his life for these sheep. He's getting paid a buck sixty-five an hour. That was the minimum wage, I think, when I started work. Maybe a buck sixty. <laughs> then the wolf attacks the flocks and the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And then Jesus says again, verse fourteen: "I am ego e me. I am the name of God. I am the good shepherd." I know my sheep. I know my people. I know God's people. And my sheep know me. Uh, in the past couple of years, we lost a, a great um, Christian leader and scholar named J.I. Packer, who um, I read his book decades ago, Knowing God. Knowing God. We want to come to know God. We must come to know God. We must come to know Jesus. We don't read the Bible simply to read the Bible. Simply to learn things we didn't know before. Oh, that's interesting. I've got a lot of books where I do that. <laughs> we come to Scripture so that we can come to know God better. To know Jesus better to be confronted by Scripture in that search for knowing. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There you have it, right there. And the Pharisees, I am sure, were just standing there stunned. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, Jesus says, I know my sheep and they know me.
And then Jesus turns, I think, and looks the Pharisees directly in the eye. That's how I typically see these sort of moments. In verse 16, I have other sheep that are not part of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So who do you think he has in mind there? I think he has in mind the Gentiles. Go back, just go back to that, that grounding verse in Genesis 12, 3, when God says to Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Then tie it forward to when Jesus is returning to the Father and he says, he expresses the same thing really two different ways. Go out and teach and, and baptize the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Matthew. Go out and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth in Acts. Right? All, all, all Jew, Gentile alike, God's desire is to reconcile all humanity, all humanity to God. So in a moment like this, when Jesus is talking about the other sheep, I don't know who else he could have in mind besides this larger purpose, mm -hmm. which, are, which is that the Gentiles, too, are going to be part of the flock. And you see, there is to be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. Um, in Ephesians, Paul says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, 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 one. We are to be unified. And when we Christians are not unified, as so often we are, because we sin is still with us. When we are not unified, it, it weakens us and it disappoints God. Of course it does. There's to be one flock and one shepherd. And who is that shepherd? Jesus. Jesus. I guess he's also talking about, too, the Jews that are not accepting him. Sure. Yes. Right? Whoever, it's, it's one, there are people who have, are embracing him and there are others who are not. And there is the Gentile world and they are all, Jesus is here for the sake of all. Verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. only to take it up again. So in that moment, Jesus talks about his own death and his own resurrection. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. This is something that Jesus is doing willingly, intentionally. He is going to stay on this path of faithfulness. He is not going to run away. He's not going to head off into the wilderness and disappear. He is going to, to carry this forward until the place it just has to end. And that is on that, on that cross. 
verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Which is getting at the, uh, you know, the truth that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit share one will, one purpose. You can't, you can't drive lines separating the will of the Father and, and, and the Son apart. Even in Gethsemane, when Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion, he doesn't want to die, right? But he, he knows what God's will is. He knows what God's will is. Well, verse 19. First of all, before I go on to verse 19, thoughts? Anything that, over there, Patty? No, no, Anybody no. questions? No questions. Anything right like that? So, here we have, we just go back. I have another slide here, I think. These are the seven statements. I got a different slide because I realized the slide I had been using didn't have them really in the right order. I don't know why they did it that way. But here, in one, in just a, within a few verses, we get two of the seven I, I am statements. Remember, I am is the name of God that is given to Moses at the burning bush. And so for everybody I know, um, every Christian scholar I know, these seven statements carry a special weight. I am the bread of the life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. So... Well, <coughs> verse 19. Well, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? You know, and it's easy to take that kind of sentence, you kind of toss it away, and you know, these are Jesus' opponents. But if you will take Jesus seriously, and read through the first 18 verses of chapter 10, either he is who he is claiming to be, or he is mad. <laughs> I don't know. You know, some people, with the, the old, the old three-form, three-part way of this, he's, the, he's either liar, he's either God, liar, or a lunatic, but I never got the whole liar part because... I don't know who lies their way to a cross, to crucifixion, right? But um, the things he says are just astounding. Mad. Sure, demon-possessed, unless they are actually true. And when you encounter a statement like this, he is demon-possessed and raving mad while listening to him, take it to mean this, that the people there who heard these words 
they understood the significance of what Jesus was saying. That these words from Jesus weren't just lightly tossed off and people were going away and saying, oh, that's comforting, that's nice. No, no, these are powerful words. And they're either true or he's a madman. Verse 21, but others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Which takes you back to the chapter 9 story. Remember the chapter 9 story was the story of a man who had been blind from birth. Jesus heals him and then the man is virtually assaulted by the Pharisees and the priests and everything and witnesses are brought in as they're trying to figure this out and um, so there's conflict and confusion in the crowds some are repelled by Jesus they think he's mad or demon possessed but others are drawn to Jesus and see in his actions and see in his words someone they had never encountered before and I'm not saying they know answers to this, but their hearts are open, their minds are open. I think too many people in our world today don't give, don't even give Jesus a chance. JJ, they just assume that they, that they know. And I personally think many people who turn away from Jesus, or turn away from God, or turn away from Scripture, do it out of an abundance of ignorance. Just an abundance of ignorance. Because I just, that's, that's just what I hear. So, okay. So, I think we are going to end right there. Because we have a big, we're going to have a change now. We have a change of season. And still going to be in, in Jerusalem because a lot of John's gospel is actually set in Jerusalem as compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which aren't. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't really get there until um, until the end. But in, in John, a lot of it is, is set in Jerusalem. And yes, Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem at least three times a year because he was a righteous Jew. And righteous Jewish men travel to Jerusalem three times a year at a minimum for the three major Jewish festivals. So when we come back next week, we'll pick it up at verse 22 and the conflict will grow because in chapter, we're in, in the second half or second part of chapter 10. In chapter 12, we get to the evening before the crucifixion, you see. So we're almost there. We are almost there. Yep. So. We are. There we are. There we are. Good class. Thank really you. Really good class. You I learned some stuff about sheep, huh? Shepherds. I did. And it, you know, these are scriptures that probably everybody that's online with us today have heard many, many times throughout their life. But to actually stop and go through it in detail and kind of. Take the time to try to hear it. Yes. Anew. 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 With fresh ears, as with you fresh would, ears. As you would say.
So we are, we're grateful for that, Scott. So everybody, I hope you have a beautiful day today. I can see from our house, our little windsock is just sideways in the wind <laughs> and my pillows have blown off the chairs outside. So I know it's windy, but it's sunny and pretty. And I just pray that you all stay healthy and well the rest of this week, really for this whole year. And uh, hopefully we'll see some of you in church on Sunday or online. Or online. Online on we, Sunday. You know. We totally understand yep. if you don't want to be there. And if you all see us and we don't come over and hug you, please understand that's why it is too. We're, yeah, just, we're just being, we've, just gone, we've be gone back to cautious mode. We have, we have. And we've never been crazy <laughs> no, mad about haven't. it, but we're... <laughs> You know, we're we're not doing. I just don't want to get what Savannah had. Yes, yeah, so that was that's pretty much the hmm. worst sore throat. And we've heard that now for many people who've yeah. had COVID. Harold Walker too. How bad their sore yeah. throat was. So, please join me as we close today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this group. Gosh, we've been meeting online for you know eighty something weeks. It's crazy, Lord. And uh, you know, we were hoping soon to get back in person, but. Just going to have to see what happens right now. We pray, God, that you would hold each one of us close this week, and we pray, God, that we would be looking for you, that we'd be seeking your presence in our lives. We pray, God, that you would watch over us and our families, our friends. We pray, God, that you would help protect us, God, as we're doing our part, but that you would help protect us, God, in keeping us healthy, keeping us safe. And we do pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives to help us make the right kind of decisions that we need to make every day. I thank you, God, so much for this group. I thank you for Scott's teachings. And I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to open our eyes throughout this next year as we look at Scripture, probably way closer for a lot of us than we have ever have before, and to... Um, just realize that even these verses that are very, very familiar to us, it's always good to hear them with a different perspective. And uh, we pray, God, that you would open our eyes and our ears to that. All this we pray in the great and glorious name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Or very truly, amen. <laughs> amen. Bye, Okay. Thanks. Adios, everybody. Have a great day. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.